good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Dr. Anthony, thank you so much. Um, I don't like uh, big introductions, so I want to cut straight to it. But this time, I'm going to do a little introduction. And my introduction goes something like this. In the previous session, I caught you saying something which, um, which is obvious, but the fact that you said it caught my attention, arrested my attention, in fact. You said that there are people in the United States who never tire of seeing an Arab as an Arab, whether he's from Morocco or from Oman. And with regard to your kind invitations to me to be part of this event, every year I get the invitation and I look at it and I say, this guy does not tire of it. <laughs> year after year after year after year after year, Dr. Anthony is at it. And what is he at? He is at doing the antithesis of what he just described. He is uh, tirelessly working so that a Moroccan is a Moroccan, an Omani is an Omani, a Saudi is a Saudi, but that they are seen in the context where they all share something in common. And I'm very grateful to you that you made that point, which I totally obviously subscribe to. Now, to the issue at hand. Um, U.S.-Arab relations in the next U.S. presidency. In 2008, without going back too far in the past, people in um, the Middle East, and obviously other parts of the world, but we're talking about the Middle East and North Africa here, uh, they looked at what was happening in the United States, and everybody was saying, wow, the Americans have elected a black man. Things are going to be different. Does foreign policy have a color open to debate? About five, six years ago, things seemed to be shaking in the Middle East and North Africa in what became known as the Arab Spring. And people were looking at that here in the United States, and they were going, wow, the Arabs can do it, and they are doing it. In 2016, the Arabs seemed to be doing it, but in a sometimes fundamentally different direction from what it looked like in uh, 2011. And the Americans looked at through Arab eyes also seemed to be doing it in a, an almost fundamentally different direction from the way we've been accustomed to in the sense that there are people talking about the U.S. election. Is it going to be rigged, as Donald Trump uh, says? Is there going to be violence, uh, as some of Donald uh, Trump's uh, uh, supporters, again, to be debated. The one thing that all these events, in my eyes, have in common is that there is uncertainty. There was uncertainty back in 2008. There was uncertainty back in 2011. And there is uncertainty now in 2016 when it comes to 
which way the Americans are going to go with the Arab world, which way the Arab world itself is going to go from this point. Well, now that I've made my little spiel, let me introduce the guests. I'm extremely happy to welcome, and I'm just going to do the names and the titles, the biographies, you have them to save time, the Right Honorable Muna Makram Abid. Sitting next to her is Ms. Elisa Catalano-Ewers. And on this side, I'm extremely uh, happy to uh, introduce uh, somebody I've got to know quite well um, on the show that I do on uh, Al Jazeera and on other news shows. That's Ambassador Robert Ford. Um, and last but not least, we have Mr. Saeed Mujtahid. And I'll let you, or I'll let him tell his own story in sound and I understand in pictures as well. Uh, I'm also extremely delighted that someone else will be uh, joining us. He's on his way, and I've been told he'll be here very shortly, and that is Steve uh, Clements. So without further ado, let me just explain the lay of the land, how we're going to play out this. Uh, each panelist will uh, speak for up to nine minutes, seven to nine minutes, Ladies and gentlemen, please remember nine minutes is the absolute ceiling. I talked about, I always say this, I talked about the Arab Spring later on. Beautiful thing, but I'm going to be a real dictator when it comes to <laughs> watching the time now. So seven to nine minutes for each one of you. And then I may do a round of uh, uh, questions, but the main questions and answers that uh, we want to engage will come from you, the audience. So thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you very much for being here. Let's get on with it. And how about I start with the Right Honorable Muna Makram Abid. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm so terrified I can't even thank my great old friend, John Duke Anthony, for inviting me and the wonderful organization of this whole event. So let me skip the thanks and let me start with my nine minutes from now, not before. I'm watching. Okay. Now, after listening yesterday to the incisive comments made by the Honorable Chuck Hagel yesterday, I came out with the conviction that senior generals in the United States armed forces have much more rational views of the conditions around the Middle East than do their civilian political commanders who, sent, who have sent them to fight interminable and futile wars for the past quarter of a century with disastrous results for the region. So the most important challenge, I believe, for the new president is to figure out what he wants in this region and mainly restore American credibility. The region still sees the US as an indispensable nation in geopolitics because it continues to set the pace for global policy conversations, as our friend Rahda said, and it still maintains one of the world's most powerful militaries. But the events of the past five years have put an intense strain 
on the relationship between the U.S. and its traditional partners in the Arab world, particularly Egypt and the Gulf countries. So, uh, uh, of course, this comes after the uh, declaration of President Obama of the broader retrenchment or retreat from the Middle East, which I believe will be most dangerous because if the next uh, president concentrates on keeping the lid on the explosive mess that last presidents have made on the Middle East and America's position there, instead of trying to defuse it or dismantling it, will be extremely dangerous. Now, what, how can the next president bring America back to the region and restore a semblance of stability? One, it should call off the proxy wars in Syria. This will help diminish the dangerous political rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And unless that is done, there can be no return to peace and stability in the region. Two, the next president must figure out a new regional arrangement that takes into account all the main actors and their interests, including Turkey and Iran, and find ways to help restructure the region's economy and development strategies by encouraging economic integration in close partnership, not dictates, with countries in the region. Three, unconditional support to Israel does great harm to Israel itself and greatly reduces the credibility of the U.S. in its attempts to advocate human rights and for those of us in the civil society who are trying to advocate human rights in our societies. For the next president should declare openly that it is not leaving the Middle East, that it will re-engage with its friends and allies, because this is how Putin is looked upon, standing by Assad, no matter what we think of Putin or Assad, while Obama, unfortunately, is seen as unreliable. American disengagement is what provoked Russian re-engagement. The U.S. should be seen to be helping actively their allies and friends in the Arab world, starting with Sinai and President Sisi of Egypt, who is the best equipped today to fight terrorism. Focus on President Sisi will really, uh, is the place to fight terrorism. Look at the period of Bush father and Baker defending their friends and allies when Iraq invaded Kuwait. So the new administration should openly tell Iran, we will engage with you, but don't mess with my friends and allies trying to destabilize the region. It should also tell the, the Russians, you can't start taking the Middle East again in this way. And last, but certainly not least, and I have called for this in many of my published articles in the Al-Masri Lyom, for, for those of you who read it, the region needs an Arab Marshall Plan to rebuild the region in order to prevent the rise in the future of other organizations like the Islamic State. At last word of, of notice, it is thanks to the sober military officers in both the United States and Egypt that the peace process between Israel and Egypt has endured for 35 years. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. And yes, and for the record, for the record, it's four minutes. Wonderful. An example to be emulated, ladies and gentlemen. Um, how about I move on to Lisa? Or do you want to? Do you want to? Do you want me to go to that side of the table and I come back to no, you? No, it's All fine. All right, very good.
That, that four minute thing is uh, going to be wonder. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you to the National Council. It's very humbling to be included in this panel. I'm going to be spending seven to nine minutes <laughs> talking about the challenges and opportunities for a new US administration as it develops its policy toward the Middle East and some very initial steps it might consider. This is by design not comprehensive, and I will be borrowing shamelessly from colleagues in my remarks today, some of which you have already heard from. So let's start first, from my perspective, some of the core challenges. First, January is unlikely to bring much change to the complex conflicts in the region. The failure of governance that underpinned many of these conflicts and the resulting fragmented societies will be a long-term reality for all of us. Second, ISIS may be the current focus, but after its defeat, the security vacuums and proliferation of violent extremist groups and other non-state actors will persist unless and until underlying causes are addressed. Third, rightly or wrongly, the perception is that the U.S. has withdrawn from the region and there is increased friction in our relationships with our partners. There are also some very real U.S. domestic political realities that complicate this picture. There's a growing isolationist sentiment in the United States. This political reality favors limited engagement in the world writ large, and in the Middle East particularly. In the post-Afghanistan and Iraq war context, many Americans are just not convinced that the U.S. benefits from its partnerships in the region. And finally, there is an abiding competition in policy development, and this comes from a practitioner, between crisis management, a very real demand in current times, and the strategic and focus and coherence that is needed to develop a long-term vision. So where on this bleak landscape is there some opportunity? A friend from the Regent recently said to me that there is a perpetual tension between, and I'm quoting here, the historic reliance of regional partners on the US and the need for regional states to exercise their own agency. So we have plenty that we can be critical about in the last 13 years. But what we have seen recently is many partners taking assertive steps with respect to dealing with the region's challenges. Make no mistake, this is an outcome the U.S. has sought. And while we may have buyer's remorse, uh, it is something that we should continue to support, even if we question some of the specific actions. Second, while we tend to focus on the security elements, and certainly I do, of Middle East policy, one of the most crucial and promising areas is economic. This is a critical opportunity since progress in the region is more, most likely impossible without economic reform. There's an opportunity here for the next administration to re-examine, as some colleagues have articulated in a recent report, how to work in partnership rather than separately toward asserting an affirmative agenda for the region. It's always tempting to focus on those things which we are against. Charting an affirmative course is primarily the job of the leaders and the people of the region. To craft a future that includes this greater economic prosperity, security and stability, stronger institutions, accountability between the governing and the governed, and greater dignity for all people. But the U.S. has an opportunity and, in fact, a commitment to support these efforts. 
So this is a thumbnail of some of the realities U.S. policymakers will need to consider. But what should guide them? I would say there are two overarching, fairly intuitive imperatives. One is to invest in and evolve our partnerships in meaningful ways. Challenging partnerships are nothing new in the United States, and bridging areas of divergent interests in partnerships is not something that we have not done before. So why on earth would we shrink from engagement in the Middle East? The second is to practice some strategic patience. The United States does not have a monopoly on solutions, nor should it. Patience should allow the time and space to work in partnership to reconcile these divergent interests and to look together toward accomplishing some strategic objectives. So what does this mean? The next administration needs to get back to the basics of relationship building. To paraphrase a former regional ambassador to Washington, we should remember that in the Middle East, a bear hug gets you much more from your allies than a stern lecture. We've heard quite a lot about the need to rebuild trust. But engagement is not the same as saying yes to every ask or condoning every action. It means frank, direct, and trust-based discussion, talking, but as importantly, active listening. As Americans, we are blessed with relative security, even in a post-9-11 environment. The countries in the Middle East are vulnerable in very different ways than the United States. It's important for us to recognize what that means. We don't have to agree with every conclusion, but we do need to be honest about where we disagree and what we seek to accomplish to construct the best possible policy approaches. The new administration will need to be consistent and clear in what they say and what they do in this process. And it will also be important that our regional partners are ready with ideas and are responsive in turn. The next administration will need to start this conversation privately, very early in its tenure, at senior levels and across agencies, and continue it with frequency. We each have our interests and our views, but we should establish that without the United States and without working together, realizing these interests is fantasy. We should arrive at an understanding of what are the strategic features of an affirmative approach to the region and how we work together to execute. The tactics should flow from there. This approach applies across a spectrum of challenges, but it will be particularly important in two areas as the new administration considers its approach. First, the military component of fighting terrorism, particularly ISIS in the short term, is clear. Much more complex and generational in nature is the day after. Here, the burden rests on our partners to address the underlying causes of radicalization, the social justice issues, education, inclusivity, governance, and economic opportunity. The US can provide its unique set of skills, but in support of the strategies that regional partners put forth. The second is on Iran policy, and we've heard a lot of this already. The nuclear deal reached with Iran should be vigorously implemented by the next administration. But the US government should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time when it comes to Iran. They will need to signal clearly to Iran and to its partners in the region that it will use tools at its disposal to counter Iranian policies and actions that are against US strategic interests in the region. The administration will need to think about how it builds a narrative for why the Middle East and engagement there matters to US interests, not just in the negative, but in the affirmative, and explore ways to communicate that to the American people. Yesterday, Secretary Hagel talked about military power not being a substitute for diplomacy or for policy. 
the US Congress will need to end sequestration and fund not just our military tools, but our diplomatic and our economic statecraft tools as well, a significant challenge for us today. And we will need to use these tools in conjunction with all our private sector has to offer to support the nascent economic and social reform efforts that many of our partners have begun in the region. Finally, a word on the issue of crisis management. A colleague recently said that we need to remember that most of the issues of the Middle East are not about the United States. And yet we tend to seek a neat set of solutions where the US can manage risk and effectively execute to resolve the current crisis. One minute. So close. And our partners historically have grown to expect this. The issues in the region today are just not reduced to such an approach. President Bush imposed, sought to impose his version of a new Middle East. President Obama sought to impose restraint and put the burden on regional actors. Neither of these approaches worked. Resolution requires patience, honesty about shared responsibility, a healthy dose of humility, and committed leadership. It also needs to account for the fact that partnerships should grow and mature, a development that actually can be an opportunity as we look forward toward evolving U.S. policy toward the Middle East. That was under a minute, wasn't it? That was, as long as it was under nine minutes, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I was going to switch over to the other side, but while we're on the left, not politically or ideologically, on my physical left, Steve, do you want to go? Sure. Up there, down here? Yeah, up here. Hey, how are you? Good to see you. Hi, folks. Sorry I'm late. I'm Steve Clemens. I'm Washington Editor-at-Large of The Atlantic. Uh, I'm going to be far brief, uh, more brief. Abdurrahim and, and uh, uh, John Duke Anthony and others invited me onto this panel um, last minute, and they said to share some of your thoughts about the next presidential administration and the Middle East. And I thought rather than saying things that, that were there, I, I might try and provoke some things. I don't necessarily agree with everything I'm about to say, uh, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, you know, when, in, 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 in thinking about what the next president inherits, and, and how you begin to gauge and game out uh, what our engagement in that region is going to look like. I think you need to assess, first of all, what's going on here during this election and what has been manifested uh, in the race we've seen. And it's very clear that the next president uh, is going to inherit a sense of national fatigue, frustration, uh, and a sense that American global engagement hit a point of diminishing returns a long time ago that the quid pro quo that America's, uh, uh, I guess America's working people felt that they would get from a large scale global engagement doesn't work for them anymore. You can go to Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. I've got about 100 relatives in that uh, area of the world. 97 of them support Donald Trump. About three support Hillary Clinton. Uh, many of them have served repeated uh, tours of duty abroad and have gone home to find the jobs they would have otherwise had uh, shipped off to China, the Middle East, or offshore in other ways, or a victim of technology transition. Whatever it may be, they just have a sense that the system that we have in place is not working for them. Uh, and I don't think Washington discusses that enough, but I think it's very clear, clearly part of what the next president is going to inherit, either within 
uh, if that's Hillary Clinton, she's going to have to sort of come to terms with that. And one of the things I think we need to pose uh, if Hillary Clinton does win, and many people have a sense of Hillary uh, as one who intervenes, who uh, can't, uh, doesn't see a problem out there that isn't an American problem uh, and isn't predisposed to show muscle and use military might to uh, uh, try to secure great human rights and whatnot. But the problem is whether Hillary can be Hillary in the next era, given the politics that we've seen uh, come about here. And I have my doubts. Uh, I don't know for sure, but I think it's going to be very, very hard for the next president to claim a secure mandate when it comes to international affairs uh, given this election. Um, secondly, I think what nations in the Middle East uh, in many of the corners will want to see from the United States uh, in terms of uh, a constancy, a military posture, a dependability and capability that it is definitive is no longer possible to give that uh, the world has never been more fragile in my uh, observation of it. Uh, and there is a sense that not just in the Middle East, but just about everywhere, there's a sense of compounded doubt. And what I worry about is that uh, and you saw this happen when Obama came in. You actually see it usually when every president comes in, usually between Europe and Japan. Uh, Europe is basically, do you still care for us? Do you still care for the European project? Because usually the first trips classically were to Asia and Japan. That's changed significantly in the rest. But you would have these kind of attention spasms about whether or not uh, America loved them enough. Now I'm not sure that they care quite as much uh, because I think much of the world has moved beyond that question. But there is a, a doubt about America's uh, ability to do this. And so it kind of reminds me of an emotional black hole of kind of, if you imagine a relationship that constantly needs to be tended and tended and tended, and no matter how much you give it, it's never enough. And particularly when you see the dramatic changes uh, that have gone on within the Middle East and really a competition between, um, you know, I would put it Saudi and Iranian interests throughout the region or Shia and Sunni interests in the region. There's paranoia on both sides uh, that each is getting the better angle on the other, and that America has somehow managed to make all this happen to them, that they become victims in the relationship, not beneficiaries of the relationship. And so it's basically um, sure to be um, certainly dysfunctional in lots of ways. And so that um, uh, is, is uh, part of the, the feature of the landscape. I see global doubts and abilities America to deliver uh, in whatever that means, both at home and abroad, this sense, this perception that the politics that has evolved here is one where both domestically in the United States, because of the clear political knots here at home, which everyone in the world sees. So this is all happening very, very explicitly on the global stage. And other nations know that the next president is going to be consumed uh, with, with turmoil, political battles, and, and fights at home. Now, maybe that drives some presidents to, to engage very deeply in foreign affairs internationally. That's classically happens, but not usually at the beginning of their administration. So they sense a sense of weakness, of distraction, of inchoate uh, policy abilities. And I think that um, when it comes to international issues, and I think this goes back to the Iraq war, the Iraq war managed to create a condition that, that, that was remarkable in that, that the military dimensions of that showed limits. You used to be able to go around the world to developing nations, big nations, small nations, and just about everybody thought the United States had no limits, that it could kind of figure out a way out of any problem. Iraq war changed that, the sense of fatigue, the sense of not being able to handle much more there, and then the economic dimensions of it. And then I would also say things like Afghanistan, where you had a crazy situation where the United States was spending $120 billion uh, in a country with a $14 billion GDP. It begins to sort of beg 
for like what is rational anymore, what gravity is taking us in these, in these decisions. You could have bought Afghanistan eight or nine times over for the amount of financial resources, not to mention human resources, that were going into that. And Americans kind of get the sense that it's not there. The problem with, with doubt and, and a sense that America will be distracted is that the first casualty are allies who will not count on us as much. And I would challenge you, many of you are, are very tied to the Middle East. If you go to Saudi Arabia, you know, I took four countries, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Japan, and Germany. Japan and Germany were both sort of satellites of American interests over the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, and Israel and Saudi Arabia, uh, both strong allies, one more in the closet than the other. Uh, but fundamentally, all four countries that so you would measure, the four of the closest countries we've co coordinated with, uh, have all changed their behavior, all expecting the United States to be less able, less capable, less there uh, in their times of need or challenges. And that, that sends signals to foes. So the, the issue now is, and you see it happening with China, you see it happening with Russia, in different ways, uh, while allies doubt America's ability to be there, uh, enemies and foes move their agendas. And they move them in a way hoping at some point when there's a new equilibrium established they will be uh, in a better negotiating position. And I think that really defines a lot of what Russia is doing today. Um, I would say that uh, the other complicated thing, and, and I, I, I feel this more strongly I suppose with Hillary Clinton than with Trump, um, but, but Trump doesn't, um, doesn't really fall out of the model very much, is that Nations today, particularly big nations, whether it's a, you know, a Russia, a China, or others in the region that are playing, Turkey and others, they're playing their hands somewhat duplicitously and covertly in a way that uh, when the world is expecting to see American muscle, they're tr hiding their muscle and taking action anyway. In a world that's often not discussed in circles on national security, where hybrid war, cyber, little green men, information warfare, zero days malware that's installed in the uh, infrastructure of other countries. This is the new terrain of war and conflict and, 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 and competition. Uh, and our dialogue and our need of muscle, and even if you go back and listen very carefully to Donald Trump and to Hillary Clinton, the way in which they talk about American power or American response to the Russians or what we're doing in Syria is in such classic antiquated terms that doesn't really reflect this. So there's going to be a need to, to, that, that the president feels to show muscle and might in an era where our adversaries are hiding their muscle and might. It's going to create, I think, some interesting challenges on miscommunication uh, and, and accident. We can probably go into that. I would also say... One minute. Yep. That, that uh, and, and this is probably the most controversial thing. I love the Middle East. I go frequently, I have many friends there, and I myself see a very rich array of things that should matter <clears throat> to this country. But <clears throat> on the whole, I would say whether you're in the political establishment, you get beyond defense sales, you get beyond oil, that, that today the Middle East does not look like an arena uh, that matters to the United States and Americans in anything other than a threat. Uh, the prospects where the global middle class will be tomorrow uh, and in the future is really situated in Asia. Uh, the Middle East today and this, this conflict that's broiling up, the competition between different players in the region, is one that is punctuated by conflict fear and, and the concern, and you saw this very much expressed in Jeff Goldberg, my colleague's uh, article in the Obama Doctrine uh, in the Atlantic, that, that other nations want to hijack American capacity to fight their wars. There's just a sense, and I don't necessarily agree with it, that much of the Middle East just doesn't represent a positive net gain 
for the interests of this country. And that means it's going to be harder and harder to justify the resources, particularly on the military side, for deep engagement. And I just want to throw that out there. I could very well be wrong. Much of what I said, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think at this moment I am wrong. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Now, I face a conundrum because on the other side, I have a guy who knows his serious stuff really well, and I have another guy who is actually Syrian. So who do you want me to start with? The guy who knows his Syrian stuff well or the guy who is Syrian? I never promised you anything but dictatorship. It's my choice. And therefore, I'm going to start with the guy who knows his serious stuff really well. And just in case people start thinking, oh, those damn Arabs, you know, anything about democratic choice, the only reason I'm choosing this path, actually, is that because I know the Syrian guy has some visuals that he wants to show us, so I'm keeping him for last. Ambassador Ford, thank you. Shukran ya hadrat al-mustabid. Ahlan, ahlan. So um, I'd like to thank the council for inviting me here today. It's great to see some old friends' faces out in the audience. Tom Zams, Rich Schmier over there. Um, and John, I'd like to thank you. People here won't know it, but John Duke Anthony was my professor of Middle East Studies at Johns Hopkins Sice in 1979 before I had ever seen the Middle East. And he painted a picture of it that just absolutely intrigued me. And um, so, John, it's your fault, everything that's happened to me since. So um, I'm going to talk for just a few minutes about what it's, I think it's going to look like there and here next year. Uh, over there, first, I don't think the Arab Spring is finished. I don't think it's finished at all. I don't think the demands among young people in that part of the world, demands for dignity and demands for accountability are finished. I think they're sobered by what they've seen in places like Syria and Libya, but I don't think their demands for dignity have really changed. I see protests spring up in places like Beirut. You stink, angry about the trash collection fiasco. See protests in Baghdad where they demand that the government stop stealing and start fixing the country's problems, even with the Islamic State crisis. And these are not sectarian protests. They cut across sectarian lines. They cut across ethnic lines in Baghdad. Uh, and they've been repeated elsewhere in the region. Um, so that's the first thing I'd say. I don't, I don't think the Arab Spring is done. Second. The region has a gigantic challenge. It's got this youth bulge that we all know about. But when I think of the challenge of it creating 50 million jobs in the next six years, 50 million jobs in the next six years, that's UN estimates, to absorb that youth bulge, uh, that's going to be tough. And that has to be a priority for them. And it really needs to be something we should be thinking of helping with. It's going to be even harder <clears throat> when you have climate change, which little by little 
gradually is making it harder for agriculture sectors there, even things such as the problem of flooding with sea level rise in the Delta and Alexandria. Um, so these are challenges that the next administration is going to face, looking at it. There's a fourth thing over on that side of the world, which is the divide between secularists and religious communities is unresolved. How to address that? It's not an American issue. It's an issue for societies in places like Tunisia and Beirut, for Syria, for Iraq, uh, for Egypt. They're, they've got a lot of issues there. On top of all of those issues, they have this ongoing strategic competition between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Turkey is in that mix too. I find the narrative, which I've seen, for example, Steve in the president's interview in the Atlantic, where he sort of simplifies it down to Shia versus Sunni, I find that sort of, frankly, superficial and a little scary. Uh, not understanding the difference between bare bones, realpolitik, balance of power and struggle for power, and mobilizing people into that struggle by appealing to their Shia or their Sunni Arab identity. One is the root of the problem, the other is, a, is an aspect used to mobilize people. And I think as the administration thinks about how to deal with this, they need to understand we're actually looking at a competition that goes back to the Ottomans and the Persians, even goes back to the Arabs and the Persians, the Battle of Qudsiyah. Um, lastly, on the American side, I totally agree with what Steve Clement said about the weariness. I live in northern Vermont now, right across the river from New Hampshire, frequently go into Maine. These are mill towns, they've suffered hugely. Property values have plunged. Here in Washington, property values are doing great. Let me tell you, in large segments of the country, property values are not doing great. People, when I travel around the country from the west coast to the east coast, I don't meet anybody that wants to get involved militarily in the Syrian war, for example. There may be some demands here in Washington for more forceful action, but I don't hear it echoed one bit out in the rest of the United States. And finally, as Alyssa said, a lot of the problems which I outlined, dignity, jobs, climate change, figuring out the proper role of religion in a society. Those aren't American problems. They're not about the United States. And they're certainly not things that are fixed by the United States Air Force. I hope the next administration thinks more about how we can engage, not with our military, but rather through soft power. Things such as education and assistance with items like rule of law that would actually help reconciliation. And to do those things where governments want to work with us and where governments don't want to work with us, khali, leave it. Work with those that want to. This, after all, is about reassuring friends from external threats, but at the same time encouraging those who want to implement gradual reform that we would be happy to help them if they ask for our help. Do I have time for a story? Yes, you certainly do. In 2008, when I was the American ambassador to Algeria, I visited the University of Tlemcen out on the Moroccan-Algerian border. Tlemcen, 
during the horrible Algerian civil war of the 1990s when I was there, was a center of Islamic radicalism and terrible, terrible violence. None of us could go to Tlemcen during the 1990s, but I went in 2008. When I went to the university, I got a standing ovation from the student body, and I was shocked. I asked the university president why, I mean, I'm not Harrison Ford, I'm Robert Ford, I'm not <laughs> Brad Pitt. I, I couldn't understand it, and he, he said, but you know about your programs here, your long-distance learning programs with the University of Missouri on construction engineering and the University of North Carolina Raleigh in nursing. And I said, well, that's what I came out to see, but what does that have to do with this? And he said, but Mr. Ambassador, you know about the program's graduates. And I said, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he said, every one of our 20 graduates in engineering got a job, every one of them. And every one of our 20 graduates in the nursing program got a job. And he said, so Mr. Ambassador, now I have a waiting list of over two years to get into these programs, nursing and engineering, and I have a three-year waiting list to study English. I don't have enough teachers, and so I need you to help me get the resources to expand these things. I turned to my culture attache, Amanda Johnson, and I said, how much did this cost? And she said, $900,000. You know, I saw Condi Rice a few days after that. I was called back to Washington, and I told her this story. And I said, Madam Secretary, can I just get a million dollars to do this in Constantine, which was the other center of Islamic radicalism during the 1990s in Algeria? She said, oh, Robert, we don't have enough money. I said, Madam Secretary, we're spending 900 billion every other day in Iraq. Come on. Um, ambassadors are operators, and I did get the money. I had to go to Karen Hughes but I got it. Um, but my point is, it's not always about the military. It's about Algeria wanting to improve education and giving their kids opportunities to build their country. And I think that too is something we need to think about when we talk about re-engaging in the Middle East. Thank you, Hadrat al-Mustabib. Un, you finished under the time, so it helps to be a, a, a tyrant sometimes with these panels. Thank you, Ambassador Ford. Thank you very much. Um, last but uh, uh, not least, uh, Said Mujtahid, uh, as I promised you, he has a uh, presentation that uh, he wants to do. Um, and I promise that no matter how gripping the presentation is, I'm not going to let him go beyond the nine minutes. Um, if there are any additions that he wants to make to that, he'll just have to wait until the next round. If it's I can get this working. Okay. Do you want me to keep talking for nine minutes until he get it? <laughs> no. Okay. Well, our speaker is getting his uh, machine together. I wanted to uh, recognize the uh, Libyan attaché who's here at the conference, Madam Waha uh, Bugrehi. Uh, would you hold your hand, please, ma'am?
All right. Um, thank you, everyone, and uh, thank you, National Council, Dr. Jean, and um, thank you all for coming here. It's wonderful to see you all because only through exchange of ideas and information we can make the world much better and safer and safer for our future kids. Unfortunately, the kids of Syria are suffering in a magnitude that no word in the dictionary can describe it, especially those that are maybe unfortunate did not survive the burn because the burn that you are about to see is beyond any description. So let me start here with the BCRF. It's the Burn Children Relief Foundation. Uh, it's an organization, nonprofit, that specializes in bringing Syrian burned children to be treated in the United States. And uh, thanks to the State Department on the humanitarian area only, that uh, they were extremely helpful in providing us visa without passports. And uh, it shows on the slide, um, perhaps not maybe really clear where they have the visa and under the passport it stayed waived. Also, I'm thankful to the Turkish authority because once we bring the kids here, we have a problem to send them back once the treatment is done, simply because they do not have a passport. And most of our kids come through Turkey, through Istanbul airport. And therefore, the Turkish authority in Houston, where we bring the kids in to get treated at Galveston, um, they provide us a travel documentation that you can see it on, the, on my left side. So our first child came in in December or Christmas of 2014. And that's the story of Isra. I'm going to spend a bit time on Isra, and then I will go really fast on the uh, remainder of the children. Isra, you see her before the bombing and after. This is a result of the atrocity by the Syrian regime supported by the mullah of Iran and now supported by the terrorist activity that they're supposed to come to, to Syria to fight terrorism and they end up to be fallen themselves into terrorizing the Syrian people, which is Putin, Russia. So this is the picture receiving them at the Houston airport. This picture shows uh, Isra at the Galveston, uh, I mean, at the Shriner Hospital. And by the way, the Shriner Hospital, we are so much in debt to them. They did a great job. They treat those children on their own expense. Now, this uh, picture is Isra after several months. Now, remember, those kids come here, and they are really dramatized. Most of them have their own unique story where, unfortunately, not only burned a child, but they must have lost several members of their family. They are the only survival of the barrel bombs. But what's really unique about this picture is the fact that Isra, she asked to carry the American flag, and this was taken at the house of McDonald in Galveston. I think the child wants to express some appreciation, and she chose to carry the American flag as a way for her to show her appreciation, to give her a second chance in life. This is Isra after 18 months, and you can see the difference. 
The second child or the other child that we brought is Abdullah. By the way, those children that I'm showing, they already finished the treatment. Now, Kothar, she's a two-year-old girl, and she lost her eyelid. So when we brought her here, they did a couple of surgeries on her only to uh, fix her eye. She was not being able to sleep for at least 10 months because her eyes doesn't close. And if we did not bring her on time, she could have gone blind. This is Yumna. Yumna, she was in her house in Dara, and her mom has a baby, a few months old. She went outside the house for a doctor, and her father was working in Qatar to bring, you know, uh, good uh, things to the family so they can survive. And the barrel bomb came. She lost three of her brothers, her grandmother, and her aunt. Safiya is the same story and goes on. Now, as of today, they, in Galveston, we have four children under treatment. Mustafa, Mustafa can, when he came here, cannot move, mobilize his neck. And he used to, you know, walk bending. They did several surgeries on him. Now he is in much better shape, but he's also going to go into a long treatment. Rima is the same thing. Fatima, her injury is the worst. Her brother is less severe, but we brought them together because, the, you know, the family are here, so we might as well uh, try to uh, help her brother because usually we only bring the, um, the uh, tr uh, what do you call it, the case that cannot be treated in the region. Now, those are pending cases. Rawan, you can see the extensive of the injury. Muaz as well, and Mayas. Now we have several cases that are under um, consideration. This program has been truly very successful. It's only 19, 18, 19 months old, and we already treated five, four under, you know, under treatment, and two to come, and there are several we are uh, you know, looking at. But I must have tell you, that this program would not have been successful without the contribution of a good people uh, that believed in this cause. But beside all of that, without the passion to do such a work would not have been easy or accomplished. And the passion did not come from me, it came from Suzanne Baraj. Can you please, Suzanne, stand up? Just to recognize her. and so as Ambassador Ford. Thank you. Our challenges are communicating with the parents. Remember, the bombing is constant every day. So the family is moving. So you call them today, maybe they have a bomb in that area, you don't hear from them for several weeks. It's a lot of challenge. Uh, getting all the medical report required by the family so we can get the Shriners to approve them. Then after you get the Shriner approval, moving them to Turkey. You're doing okay. Um, moving them to Turkey is really another challenge because now you have, you know, so many militia in those area and you don't know which one you can go through uh, safely. Um, but once they get to Turkey, we get a lot of challenge. The Turkish government has been extremely helpful 
but they are extremely bureaucratic as well. And the law changes in terms uh, of Syrian refugees simply because of the European putting pressure on them. So every time we try to learn some of their rules to bring uh, those children, by the next one, the rule change. So we end up really struggling, you know, three, four, five weeks sometimes in Turkey, just trying to get them out. One minute. And uh, in terms of a budget, we. It costs around $8,000 just to bring them here, between everything transporting them here to the US. Monthly living, 3,900. On an average of a treatment, eight months, it will cost close to $39,000. Expanding the program. Today, BCRF working as a volunteer. We don't have anybody on the payroll. Now that we are truly demonstrated the ability to change a child's life, we wanted to move it from the volunteer base into the institutional. And therefore, we, we are launching marketing and awareness campaign, and we would like to build a specialized housing center so also the kids can have a place to play and get educated as well. And therefore, uh, we can be able to expand that program on a much larger scale. Am I done? I mean, am I done on time? I, I, I... I would like to beg the forgiveness of those children, but you are done. All right. Thank you very much for Thank listening. you very much. Thank you. And I, I, I wish I could uh, come up with a, a, a joke that lightens up the, the atmosphere, but I'm not even going to try. I don't want to insult anybody. So I'll just give you time to actually because uh, I have a follow-up question, but I'll give you time to take your seat, and I'll ask you, I'll start with you, with a follow-up question. And please, if you have any comments or questions, um, I need to have them for the, for the panel. <clears throat> so my uh, question to you is, um, it's, it's as if listening to you go through your presentation, it's as if I'm actually hearing you say, Politics has not worked to change the reality in Syria, but maybe humanitarian relief uh, and humanitarian documentation may. Is that your objective? Am I hearing you right? Not really, not really because um, I hate to see Syria conflict as the media you know, say it is a humanitarian. It's beyond humanitarian. Uh, the problem with Syria is that the Syrian today, they're not fighting a dictatorship anymore, but they are fighting for the existence and the identity of the entire region. It's only Syria is the beginning. And therefore, the Western world should come to its own principle that they always claim they have, that they fight for democracy and, and human rights and dignity. But when it comes to Syria, there is no action. Ambassador uh, Ford, if I may uh, go to you for the, for, the, for the next one. I mean, you've seen the presentation. You've heard the argument from the, Bush, from the Obama administration. We heard the argument from you when you were ambassador to Syria. We've heard the argument from you after you stopped being U.S. ambassador to Syria. Where is it all going in Syria, do you think? Oh, okay. 
the admin. Can you hear me? Yeah, I didn't think so. So the admin. Thanks, Saeed. So the administration has a mantra, which is there is no military solution. I don't think Vladimir Putin. I don't think Qasem Soleimani of the Revolutionary Guard Corps Quds Force. I don't think Bashar al-Assad got the message. They have escalated sharply, and they are gaining ground. And the argument ha has always been, well, there'll be a counter-escalation, and therefore it goes back to stalemate. I have not seen the counter-escalation from the side backing the opposition. That is to say, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the United States, others. I have seen the Jordanians completely shut down the southern front, completely shut it down, which has enabled the Assad government to shift forces to Damascus, and that's why longtime opposition strongholds like Daraya and Muadamiya have had to surrender in recent weeks after holding out for years. So I think, um, Abderrahim, where this is going, unless the trajectory changes, is over a period of years, Little by little, Assad will retake large additional parts of the country beyond Aleppo, moving towards Idlib and moving out to the east. And he says that's what he wants to do. Hassan Nasrallah yesterday underlined Hezbollah's support all the way. He said until they get rid of the um, Tekfiri uh, element in Syria, well, that means they're going to have to go all the way to the east. And I haven't seen any indication that the Russians have the inclination or the ability to restrain Assad and the Iranians. And so short-term prognosis, more fighting. Long-term prognosis, Syria in ruins under the control of Bashar al-Assad. Be very unstable, but that's where it's going. And uh, while waiting to get some questions, just as a, as a, as a follow-up, Okay, now I've launched into the follow-up. I'll finish it, and then I'll, I'll go to the audience questions. Does a President Clinton or a President Donald Trump care whether Assad takes over the, 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 the whole of the country, as you said? I'm probably not the best person on the panel to ask that question to, Abdurrahim. I, I live in Vermont. I'm far away. Um, I would just speculate that Donald Trump doesn't care a whit. Uh, and I think Hillary Clinton, certainly when I uh, worked with her in 2012, she cared a very, very great deal about Syria. But the conflict in 2012 was very, very different from what it is now. And her options in 2017 will be fewer and more difficult. And no option will have a guarantee of success and no option will come without substantial risks. Even doing nothing, or doing very little as we're doing, I shouldn't say nothing, even doing relatively little as we do now has risks and it has downsides. I, I would just remind people the United States military has been in combat operations in Syria for over two years now. How many of you know when that's going to end? How many of you know what the end would look like? I don't either. And so it's, it's going to be hard for her. Uh, I have a question from the, the floor, uh, and maybe I should go to uh, uh, Madam Mona Makramabid for this one. What can the next US president do 
to promote human rights in the MENA region, specifically those of women, LGBT, individuals, and religious minorities. It was said before, today what we need is not military uh, re-engagement only, but a re-engagement of soft power. Meaning that today, what are the needs of the citizens in this country? They need dignity, they need a voice, they need jobs, they need to have hope for the future. And this is where the American administration can come in with uh, for instance, a global fund for education for all these people who are today. You, we said yesterday the, uh, we need five, 50, who said 50 million, 50 million jobs within the next 10 years, I think. So these people are not prepared for these jobs. These six, people, six years, I think, is what we heard. Yeah, exactly, in six years. So who is going to do the job? unless there is a, a, a concerted effort of the international community in order not to have this uh, region destabilized more than it is today. Also, and I forgot to say this in my uh, uh, intervention, is to focus more on the new generation. We saw how these wonderful trainees here at the National Council, this, these are the people who give us hope, who give us hope for the future. So concentrate on them, Trying, try, try to get them on your side, meaning on the side of building up uh, uh, a trust in their governments, which they don't have today because they distrust them entirely, in order so that they don't leave the country and go to these radical Islamist uh, opposition groups. Uh, uh, Steve and uh, Lisa, please bear with me. I want to bounce back to the other end of the, the panel, Said Mujtahid. I have an interesting one for you um, as a follow-up to your presentation. The question says, instead of bringing those wounded children to the United States, which is costly, not my own comment, which is costly is part of the question, why uh, don't you bring doctors to there and cure the kids at the location? Because they don't well, have I the get, hospitals, obviously. Yeah, you hear me. I get these questions a lot, um, and the answer is really simple. Number one, in my own view, when a child cannot be treated in the region, mm -hmm. there is no money that you know, we can say it's worth it or not. It's not a debatable issue. We need to bring uh, that child here and give him another chance in life. Perhaps they might be the next Steve Job. Now, in addition to you know, replying to the other part of the question, to send the doctors there, well, many of the Syrian physicians are going there to treat, but the problem is there's no more hospitals because the Russians keep bombing the hospitals, schools, exactly. and so it's really not at all feasible, and they need also equipment to treat those uh, kids. So. Um, it, it's just impossible. Okay. Uh, let me uh, change the, the focus uh, uh, slightly, not without parallels, obviously. Uh, I go to you, Steve, with this one. It says, with the recent turmoil in Latin America, Venezuela, Brazil, uh, is there reason to think that during the next administration we may see the American foreign policy lens shift from the Middle East to Latin America, which is geographically closer to the United States? No. 
uh, the American lens will... Do you want me to will, ask that question again? No, no, no. I, mean, I, I would simply say that, that uh, Latin America has always been unstable, always been close, and always been the place that was easy to neglect. Uh, it was close enough to neglect, never enough high enough on American priorities and strategic priorities to matter, and the instabilities there are not really any uh, uh, much greater than uh, others. It will obviously be, you know, part of the, the spectrum of attention. You know, I'm just very straight and very realist. It's just not going to get a lot of attention. Uh, I think that's not the way it should be, but that's just the way it is. The notion is, I think, much more important. It's awkward in a way to be talking about strategic priorities in the next administration when we also have very compelling images of human stories there. Uh, and I think they're very important human stories, but I actually don't, I, I think that that doesn't necessarily help rectify nor clarify uh, strategic course and direction because when you come to um, what Robert Ford shared, um, I think he's absolutely right that the, that the options for the United States around the world are going to be very, very limited. And it's why I think, to, you know, while many people lampoon the president on the Asia pivot, I think there are parts of uh, the terrain out there, Eastern Europe and Asia, that are going to not only be uh, considered to be highly significant and important to U.S. interests, but honestly, they're a bit easier as well. And so that the, that the net risks, the net costs of, of deepening and deeper middle engagement just, just won't compare with um, the stakes involved with Asia or the stakes involved uh, with Russia as it's emerging with Eastern Europe. Latin America doesn't even rise to that level of concern. So well, my apologies to that person who posed uh, the question. A, a follow-up question. I mean, let, let's imagine that the next president is Donald Trump. It may be Hillary Clinton, but let's imagine it's Donald Trump. Well, if it's we, Donald Trump... We know what sort of relationship he has with the Mexicans in particular, especially over immigration, is that in any way likely to change his focus, whether temporarily or permanently, from the Middle East to Latin America? No, Mexi you know, Donald Trump is sort of a, um, I hate, has a, a sort of trumped up Jacksonian. Jacksonian national, national security position is, is uh, uh, for those of you who, who have, have, have looked back at how Walter Russell Meade defined uh, an arena of thinking about American foreign policy around the notion of Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson had no fear of going out and clobbering and militarily engaging direct threats uh, to the United States as he saw them, but then would quickly pull back uh, to the American heartland, to the American homeland. And so it was something, let's not build nation states, let's not overly meddle, let's sit behind our walls. So that's a different thing than saying, would a Donald Trump go to Venezuela and engage and meddle? And the answer is absolutely not. I'm a realist in national security. Um, Donald Trump is an isolationist in national security um, who would use uh, muscle. To, you know, he says he would bomb ISIS and others, but none of this would entail a longer-term deep engagement with uh, uh, foreign countries. And we can debate that. And the thing is, that's not an entirely crazy uh, foreign policy position from the perspective of most Americans who, from many Americans, I shouldn't say most Americans, many Americans who feel that the return for them of the kind of engagement uh, that we've had around the world just hasn't worked out very well. So I think it would be wrong to think that because Donald Trump has talked about Mexico immigration and the wall a lot, that that would naturally lead you to think that he's going to go meddle in other countries closer to home. I don't think that's the case at all. Okay. Uh, Lisa, uh just as a, a, a way of uh, providing a, a smooth uh, uh, transition to you, the, your prescription for the next administration in your opening statement 
um, with regard to the Middle East, it, it includes uh, the issue of governance, it includes uh, uh, economics. Is there anything that you think the Middle East and Latin America would share in terms of the focus of the next uh, U.S. president in that department? I don't know that I'm equipped to, to really make a comparison, uh, given that I have no expertise in Latin America. Um, Middle East? Yeah, well, um, in, ter in terms of where they sh what the United States perspective, sharing in common, mm -hmm. um, no, I, I, I don't know that I can add anything to what Steve has said. My, 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 uh, <clears throat> is, this is on, yes? Sorry. Uh, no, I was basically punting and saying that I don't think there's anything I can add to what Steve has already said, given that I have no experience in Latin America. Uh, but for, in mm -hmm. terms of the Middle East, I mean, you, you, part of your prescription, as you say, you said failure of governance, uh, basically, uh, and turmoil will last in the, in the Middle East. So what sort of challenge, if you could elaborate a little ah. bit, what sort of challenge will that be for the next U.S. president? Oh, I'm sorry. I heard the Latin America piece and not the rest of the question. No, I mean, I think that that's a, when we're talking about the, the kind of persistent challenges and, and, and Ambassador Ford, you elaborated on this. Mona certainly elaborated on this. We're talking about persistent issues of, of development and, and nation building that has, has perplexed states in the region for since, in some cases, since their creation, but certainly over the course of the last 80, 70 or 80 years for some. So, so this, is a, this is an issue of dealing with some of those persistent issues that have not been dealt with, whether it be the question of looking at accountability of government, looking at issues of corruption, whether it's a question of looking at how, how one approaches inclusivity and, and, and basic dignity, um, how one uh, accepts space for pluralism, and that's not simply in, in government structures, but the space to debate ideas. Um, th this is, I think, e critical to what one does after the immediate threat of a radicalized group like ISIS is eliminated from, from the landscape, the, the causes um, persist, and so dealing with those root causes is something that these governments and, and institutions will need to contend with moving forward. Okay. Uh, back to the uh, issue of uh, Syria with uh, uh, our two esteemed panelists uh, on the other side. I have a question which says, um, has uh, the backpedaling on the red line made the case worse, what can be done to recover this damage uh, to U.S. Cre credibility um, in the next administration? And the question is addressed specifically to Ambassador Ford. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> yes, it hurt. <clears throat> yes, it hurt U.S. credibility. How to get credibility back? I suppose it depends. Credibility with whom? Uh, credibility with the North Koreans who must have been watching or the Sudanese in Khartoum who must have been watching? I think it's going to be very hard to get credibility back. And it, it basically depends on the Americans showing more resolve next time. 
uh, to address a violation of an international norm. But Syrian government is still using chlorine gas with some regularity. The United Nations Joint Investigative Mission just came out and fingered the government for at least a third instance of using chlorine gas in 2015. I see no evidence that this administration is going to try to address that credibility problem. The next administration will have to think about whether or not they want to draw, I don't want to say this, I'm going to have to say it carefully. The next administration is going to have to decide whether they want to better generate international community support to restore the norm against the use of chemical weapons. Okay. Can I add 30 yeah. seconds yes. to that? Yes. You know, I think it's important. You know, you had Chuck Hagel. I was in Denver yesterday, but I watched Chuck Hagel's, um, read Chuck Hagel's speech here, and he talked a bit about Russia. Um, I think it's important in discussions when we're discussing the red line and what happened. I agree with um, Bob Ford that, that it's going to be tough to get credibility back after a situation like that. The, the, the words red line should not, never have been used uh, if, in fact, you weren't willing to, to wear them. But it's not, we're not in a silo where we're just talking about Syria. Syria is a collected set now of very complicated civil wars on top of which you have a lot of proxy wars and competition between big countries. And right now, we, we pretend, and I'd love to hear Ambassador Ford on this at some time, with Russia, to pretend that we can deal with Russia selectively on an ad hoc basis in this little corner of the world or this little corner of the world. Um, and, and that, so enforcing that red line, the, the game there changes one from being about Syria and the theater of war there and, 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 and also in the norms, and how serious and are we willing to t challenge Russia, which had decided to sort of come in on the side of Assad and to come in in a very serious military way when it would have uh, been on the other side of that enforcement strike. And we haven't thought that, I mean, maybe we have thought that through, but we're not willing to engage Russia globally and definitively in a lot of areas. And, and until we are, then it means you're going to have a lot of other credibility crises along the way, even if they're not called red lines. So it's important to kind of break out of the, ser the, the, the serious silo and look at the other dimensions of what's going on in the world today, particularly okay. with Russia. Okay. We mentioned the, the United States. We've mentioned uh, Russia. I have two uh, separate questions, uh, both of which actually mention China, uh, one directly, one obliquely. And I'm, I don't know who I should address this question specifically, but I'll just put it out there. Uh, both questions are asking if the idea of a Marshall Plan, whether financed by China or if it's a, an exclusively U.S. Uh, project, is there any space for it in the United States, uh, in the Middle East of uh, the next administration? Any takers? Yeah. Yeah, please. Because I'm the one who suggested it. <laughs> All right. Well, I think today that this is <clears throat> one of the things that we, the next administration should think about. Because what is, what is important today is what we said <clears throat> earlier, is the soft power. It means <clears throat> creating jobs, training people to <clears throat> good governance, training governments for accountability, all this will not come unless the people themselves feel that there is hope for the future. And I believe that an Arab Marshall Fund and 
it is very possible that China will be on board for that. I have a follow-up question, actually, uh, to you before I move on to a question about uh, uh, Israel and the Middle East. You, when you look, you, you're, you're from Egypt, 7,000 years of, uh, uh, several thousand years of history. Syria, the same. Uh, Iraq, uh, uh, likewise. And excuse the question if it's too textbookish. Do you foresee any situation in the future where the Middle East does not need the United States, does not need Russia, and does not need China? Or is that a, a fairy tale? It's a fairy tale. <laughs> Next question. Do you think the new administration will apply justice in the U.S. policy in foreign aid or armaments in the Middle East and Israel? Any takers? Does anybody want to take this? Look, this is the time that even Israel has turned to, uh, to Russia after the dis uh, disengagement of the U.S. But this tells you quite a lot what is happening. So the U.S. must not wait for the next administration to come, but prepare the tools for, the, for, for January 2017 to facilitate the new president to see how they can deal with the settlement activity of the, of the Israelis. Uh, Steve, in your opening statement, you and others as well, they, 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 there was talk of uh, allies taking a harder look at their alliance with the United States in various parts of the world, particularly in the Middle East. You mentioned uh, the Israelis, mentioned the Saudis, you mentioned uh, others were, 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 were mentioned. What sort of challenge will the next uh, administration, whether it's the Donald Trump administration or Hillary Clinton administration face? I think the biggest challenge they'll have is being able to stick to the lines of any um, strategic aspirations they might have because they're naturally in what I call a whack-a-mole world where there's so much doubt that America is going to be engaged in trying to strategically reassure allies that will be there one by one by one by one with adversaries testing American resolve and American power and with allies not quite sure will be there. So that creates a situation which is highly reactive and that is very continuous with where we're at today. We have a very reactive foreign policy uh, uh, and, and uh, we have a combination of reactive foreign policy and, and, and or non-involvement and I suspect that, that that line will continue. And I love to hear people's aspirations of all the things the United States should do or could do with resources. It's just not going to happen. And so what you're going to see are uh, areas of the world that have to find a different equilibrium with a more modest level of engagement of the United States. And, you know, again, these are things that I very much hope that I'm wrong, but that's where the trends are taking us. It's... It, it's, it's um, Silly to think that somehow we're going to stumble into a world with greater order and uh, define positive, constructive relationships with a lot of these problems being solved when it's very clearly we've been moving more and more uh, into uh, chaotic situations, failed state situations, transnational uh, 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 groups with, with uh, quite a bit of capability. And a as I started out, a real fatigue in this country 
with that arena and the sense that it, that, that it doesn't matter. I think real leadership in the United States, and maybe the next president will do this, can change that and kind of change the level of how Americans can talk about it. But you have to look at when you've had a collapse. I mean, we don't, we're not talking about the economics around the world today, but, but China's not going to do a Marshall Plan. China's got a problem keeping its economy running. Its, obje its objective is to raise another 300 million people out of poverty. It's going to have a very hard time. You know, it has stumbled economically, and it's become a lot more humble, if you will, with its global aspirations to some degree as well. But in the United States, we have a slow-moving economy. There's still a lot of bubbles out there, and you've got Europe on a kind of a, a deflationary black hole edge that I think is very worrisome. And it's in that environment where these notions of moving money and big systems just don't make sense. Right now, things are just paralyzed. And I don't see from Hillary Clinton or from Donald Trump anything that inspires me to think that they understand how to be more strategically nimble in solving a lot of the problems that have been addressed. I agree with all of that. The only, the only thing that I, the only footnote that I would add is that that is very much a reality as we look at the, the beginning of a first term as we go through the machinations of those first four years and going into even the second term of the next administration. But I think part of the exercise here has to be to look a little bit beyond that time horizon. Right? And so when you look at 10, 15 years even and laying out the, the framework for how to sustain something over time that will stabilize in some form or another the Middle East, not just for the Middle East's sake, but for those who have a vested interest in it, which include actors like China, um, how, how do you marshal, to use, to use the word as a pun, the kinds of resources you need and the kind of political support that you need to focus people's attention on that. And so I think it is something that, while difficult in this current political environment, certainly, and difficult as a general proposition, uh, is something that the next administration, whoever it might be, actually does need to address. Okay. Um, I uh, would like to go back to Sayyid Mujtahid, if I, uh, if I can, with a question uh, mostly about uh, Syria please feel free to widen the circle. Uh, what role, the question says, will the refugee crisis and the vast numbers of displaced people play for the next president? How do you see it as a Syrian? Well, that's, that's going to be, be a, a good test to the uh, next administration. Uh, the refugee is not an ending story. I mean, Russian keep bombing Aleppo. You have over close to half a million people in Aleppo. All of those are potentially can be refugee. So now it comes to the leadership of the next administration. If they're really seriously wanting to resolve the refugee issue, then they have to stop the Russian. That's the bottom line. We cannot just keep watching people being bombed every single day. And the refugee is going to be a lot of problem on Europe, in which also going to put pressure on the next administration, and so as Turkey. Ambassador uh, Ford, as uh, you know, um, and I'm, I have a, a question from Dr. Anthony, which I will come to in a minute, but you probably, most certainly, are well aware of what people in the Middle East, or at least in some parts of the Middle East, are saying that the U.S. under Barack Obama has abdicated to Russia. I don't know if you agree with that, 
And if you do agree with it, will Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton continue the abdication policy? Steve Clements, I think the most insightful stuff I've seen to answer the first part actually has been in the Atlantic, so kudos, kudos to you uh, and your team. Steve could explain this better than I could. I was a mere reader of the interviews. Um, but I think from what we saw in the Obama interview in the Atlantic in March and then the Ben Rhodes interview in uh, the New York Times book review in May, it's clear. They, this administration does not believe that the United States has the ability to address some of the underlying factors of instability in the Middle East and therefore does not want to try. The Russians, by contrast, do want to try, at least in Syria. Um, the, the Russian effort in Syria may be the Grozny solution, but they're going to try it. And because the American administration isn't going to try anything, it's easy for the Russians to move in. When, when the American administration says, I'm not criticizing this decision, but frankly, when I was in government, I supported it, but when the American administration says, we will never send surface-to-air missiles, shoulder-held surface-to-air missiles into Syria, you have just told the Russians they can operate their air force with impunity unless you're willing to send the United States Air Force in to fight them. So, yes, the administration has left a vacuum. Um, they may have had reasons to do it, but they have left a vacuum. And until the Russians and until the Iranians feel pain from their actions, and I do mean the word pain, I don't think they're going to stop. So it's just the nature of... I think it was Steve talking about creating a new balance. And they will push until they feel pain and stop pushing, at which point we'll have a new balance. What that looks like, I think nobody knows yet. And I don't think the Clinton people, it's impossible for them to have a plan yet. Syria in February is going to look pretty different from what Syria looks like today, just as the situation in June looked different from it does now. So, Dr. Anthony, you had a question? Uh, yes, mine it follows on some of the earlier comments of uh, Ambassador Ford as well as uh, Steve, but in advice comment from others. And in my question, there's, I'm, I'm like Steve, I'm not sure I believe everything I'm about to ask or say. And there is uh, not necessarily an implication in my question that I come down one side or the other. Uh, but I'm intrigued to see how analytically any of you would go at the following. Uh, Ambassador Ford early on said that uh, Russia is uh, gaining and has uh, more assets. I don't want to put words back in his mouth. But there is an asymmetry between power, military, uh, intelligence, strategic assets on the ground uh, between the Assad regime, the R Russia and Iran, uh, those three. And the rebels, on the other hand, uh, who are nowhere near as united in scope, focus, or strategic uh, di direction, uh, that there's an inevitability, it seems, from that asymmetry uh, 
If we uh, have a, a an administration that remains to its to its 2012 uh, campaign promises in 2008-2 that the United States will not become involved in any Middle Eastern war. Now relate that to the red line, relate that to the credibility, relate that to walking back to the United States uh, gaining credibility. If I remember the atmospheric receptivity or lack of receptivity and the moment being propitious at that time, uh, Obama walked away from that and expressed appreciation for Sergei Lavrov and uh, Putin for finding a rhetorical formula, uh, almost allowing to save face, uh, on the strategic assumption that had he enforced that red line, had we been credible, that could have triggered the war that he foreswore. Uh, he would not have anything to do on behalf of the American people. Now, Aristotle is known to have said that anybody who doesn't change her or his position when uh, new insights uh, emerge is a fool. And so um, uh, there's that aspect that troubles me somewhat. And on the asymmetry, uh, some people may infer from my accent that I'm not from South Brooklyn. Uh, but I'm from the southern part of the United States where there was something called the Confederacy. Everybody grows up in the south thinking that Robert E. Lee was uh, 15, 20 points ahead of Jesus Christ, Moses, and the prophet Muhammad. But I have long been a Lincoln fan. I've long been a Grant fan. Uh, Lincoln unleashed uh, Grant and Sherman. And they ended the war. It was brutal, it was cruel, it was inhumane. Uh, but had they not ended the war, um, the number of amputees, those maimed for life and killed, uh, their numbers would have been far greater. Uh, so the Syrian conflict will have to come to an end at one point or another. Now here's the strategic dilemma. If you look at it from a Saudi Arabian or a GCC perspective, minus one, uh, Iran and Russia, uh, and Assad are the culprits here, and Assad has to go. And if he goes, this will weaken Hezbollah, this will weaken Iran, this will weaken Iran's hand in Yemen, Iran's hand in Iraq, versus the other strategic dilemma, and that is to stop the slaughter, to end it. Otherwise, the slaughter continues, it accelerates, it never ends. Please address these dilemmas. Anyone? All right. Steve, can I can I uh, have your attention for for this one? And, and, and the rebels have no aircraft carrier, no plane, no <laughs> anti-aircraft, no tank, no artillery piece, and no ability to eavesdrop and the regime in Damascus has been planning for something like this, gaming for something like this, 25 years, and the rebels, barely five. Okay. I have one from the audience which flows out of what we've just heard from uh, uh, Dr. Anthony. So if you want to have a, a crack at it, up to you. It says, do you think a nuclear arms race, mainly by the GCC, um, 
with Iran, I'm assuming, is inevitable? No. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I just, I just don't. I, I, I think that... I'm so, sorry, Steve. Yeah. No, because, because of the, 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 the power of the issue itself in the region, or no, because the United States would not allow it to happen? No, I think that it's irrational and, and crazy for those countries to engage in a nuclear arms race and would open up the level. You know, it's easy to talk about a nuclear arms race. Those people with familiar with nuclear programs uh, know how extraordinarily complicated and, 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 and costly and dangerous and expensive um, these systems are. And that uh, I, I'm 10 to 1 to think right now I'm sort of impressed with the course that we're on with Iran right now. Maybe we'll get there. But, you know, I think I worry a lot more about other kinds of races. I worry a lot about um, – there's a great film out there done by Alex Gibney who won uh, an Oscar, an Academy Award for his uh, uh, movie Taxi to the Dark Side. Uh, he's done a lot of other documentaries. His latest one is called Zero Days. Zero Days is the story of the evolution, hatching, and deployment of Stuxnet. And what that malware virus has done in terms of training others. And since the Stuxnet virus, uh, we've had about 100 other cases of state-based uh, malware deployment in uh, infrastructure around the world. That is something that's far, far more disconcerting. And there is an opportunity for nations to gain leverage. Why do you want a nuclear program? Maybe you want to... You know, it's kind of like Malaysia wanted an automobile program. It made no economic sense, but you want to be a big country, so get an automobile pro program. Um, when you, you know, think about nuclear weapons, it's not just about security. It's also about vanity. But if you want general leverage and you want uh, to try and influence others or to threaten them uh, in the world, I worry a lot more about the cyber dimensions of that and, our, and the fragility on that front and the lack of norms. Uh, in that front. That seems to me, so I'm, I'm arguing, the United States has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with the way gravity is working in those situations from my point of view. Uh, Lisa, I want to stay along the same pattern, uh, uh, raising some of the points that Dr. Anthony uh, hit a little while ago. Now, he, one of the things that he said that he believes that the crisis in Syria will ultimately come to an end, everything in life must come to an end, obviously. But with the, uh, and this is the question from the audience, with the high levels of domestic fatigue that some of you touched upon in your uh, opening statements, will, do you, do you foresee a scenario where the, the war in Syria ends in the life of the next administration, or do you think, of its own volition, or do you think that the Syrian crisis has enough energy in it to keep on going beyond the next administration, whether it's four years or eight years? I think, I think the, the sad reality is that there will be, sorry, sorry, how about that, better? <clears throat> I think the sad reality is that we'll be dealing with, with if not war in Syria, and, and we can argue what we define as war, but we will be dealing with issues of um, some degree of, of, of armed conflict. We will be dealing with the issues of potentially ungoverned spaces. We will be dealing with the issue of non-state actors. We will be dealing with um, the lack of governance uh, and the ability to provide for the services of those Syrians who are still in Syria. 
for if if not the entirety of the next administration, certainly into into whatever uh, succeeds it. So you the the question of how you deal with the immediate um, the immediate de-escalation of the current violence on the ground is one very important and very difficult and a challenge that you, people far smart, smarter than I have been struggling with. But dealing with the secondary and, and tertiary effects that will last much longer, I think, are equally challenging that we really do need to get our heads around. And I don't think that we've done a terribly good job at doing that either. So it brings me back to some of the things that, that I said in my, in my opening statement, that you, this is not a place where any one country, any one particular team has a monopoly on, on how to go about it. And it really, it really does require that we get past a certain degree of going at it on our own and figuring out how we bring resources and, and, and and commitment together to figure out how we tackle those very thorny, very complicated issues that will last and be with us for quite a long time. Ambassador Ford, I know you addressed this question, but I'd like, it to, I'd like you to address it again from a slightly different angle. Do you think that the Syrian conflict can end of its own volition, or do you think that the next administration's uh, role will be instrumental in bringing the conflict to an end? If you call it conflict, there are other appellations, obviously, for it. I don't call it a conflict, I call it a war. Uh, and it seems to me that the dynamics of conflict on the inside of the country are such that there's no way for Syrians by themselves to end it. Um, I picture it rather as three rings, an outer ring, a middle ring, and an inner ring um, all have to come to an agreement to go to a ceasefire. The outer ring is a handful of countries that include Russia, Iran, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Qatar. I'm not even sure the Americans are in that ring. Certainly the Obama administration doesn't do much to get them in the ring. Um, but they have to come to an agreement because they have to then help the middle ring come to an agreement, which is on the one hand the variety of Syrian opposition figures armed and political and on the other side, the Syrian government and its various commanders and uh, political and secret police commanders. Don't forget Syria has four different secret police agencies and they all watch each other and they all watch the rest of Syria. So they all have to be brought on board. It's not a small bureaucratic management job for those of us who used to work in government. Um, and then there's an inner ring. And the inner ring can still play the spoiler. On the opposition side, that's the Nusra Front. And if they start fighting, even if they're not in the middle ring or the outer ring, they don't depend on either of those rings. And how to get them to respect a ceasefire. Um, I don't think you can right now, I don't think you can end the fighting while just trying to focus solely on the Nusra Front. I think that's a mistake this administration has made. And I say that having been one of the people who strongly advocated putting Nusra on the terrorism list in 2012. The inner ring on the other side 
are the sort of informal warlords that operate under nominal authority of Bashar al-Assad, but in fact are quite independent. And there's been a lot of interesting analytical work uh, done by various scholars, including Aaron Young, Yazid Sayyid of Carnegie, and uh, Tobias Schneider, about how the Assad government itself does not control many of the militias that operate under its nominal authority. They have various warlords in places like Homs and Aleppo and Dara, who are in this not just for political power, but also for business, war economy. And that inner circle also has to be brought around. They are not colonels and generals in the Syrian army or in the Muhabarat, the secret police. Um, they are their own entities. And so that's, that's hard. We didn't have that inner circle in 2012. That's how this has become more difficult. The, the, there's a Syrian sitting right next to you, I've heard from mm -hmm. you as an American. Uh, we obviously want to hear from, from him. Take okay. it, please. Um, I believe if there is a will, there is a way. Uh, I think the Syrian issue should not have gone to, came to this point it could have been resolved very easy from the beginning. It is the lack of the will on Obama administration that, in my own opinion, used Syria to advance the negotiation with Iran over the nuclear. And therefore, Syria has to be prolonged while this negotiation going on. While this is taking place, Russia took an opportunity to get engaged. And now things becoming, you know, in a chaos. But I think the role of United States in the world, even the, the credibility was damaged, still has a leading role that can stop it. But you need an administration that has a true leadership and a vision and make a very hard choices. And I think at the end, it will be in the national interest of United States. One last thing, just remember, we are entering the sixth year in Syria. And the majority of Syrians are very young. They haven't gone to school for six years. Can you imagine they go to a 10-year? What kind of children you will expect those to grow up? And how are they going to have love to the United States? So I would really strongly think it is in the national interest of the United States to resolve that issue and resolve it very soon. Okay, before we uh, continue with this panel, uh, we've lost Steve Clemens. Unfortunately, he had some urgent business to attend to a prior uh, 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 engagement. And then uh, we also, uh, and I'm sorry to say, we have to lose Lisa, who also has an engagement to go to. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll continue with the rest of uh, our panelists and our questions from uh, uh, the audience. Let me bring it back to you. Let me bring it back to you, uh, uh, Madam uh, Abid. You, you, we talked earlier about the issue of uh, alliances with the United States, what they, look like, what they look like now and what they may look like under a new administration. I have a question which says, how do we get the US-Egypt relationship back on track? It's a good question because uh, Egypt has been a priority in 
the American interest for 20 or 30 years, and the same thing, the U.S. has been a priority for Egypt the same time. Since at that time, when Egypt left the uh, Soviet orbit and turned to the United States, it has been a very um, fruitful and productive relationship, I must say. But today it's been strained by many, by tensions, by... Uh, uh, there, is an, uh, there is a feeling that uh, the media in, in the United States is pouncing too much on the government in Egypt, is pouncing too much on the negative aspects, as somebody has said, and not on the real achievements. There are not many, but there has been achievements since the takeover of the present leadership. So, and the present leadership looks at the uh, relationship as a strategy of, of strategic importance. I don't think it will go away. I don't think that either side will want it to go away, but they need, you know, uh, to nurture it much better. Okay. Now, I, I understand, uh, I get it. You've had a long day and, you know, some of you have already left, but I still have some questions from the audience. And to be fair to them, I'm going to tie you down to your chairs until we've gone through these questions. Uh, I have a question uh, which says, looking at the two realistic possibilities of who will be the next U.S. president, one who is pro-Israeli occupation, Hillary, and the, these are the words of the, the, the questioner, and one whose Middle East foreign policy is to knock the heads uh, off ISIS, what hope do we have for peace or an effort to achieve it in the Palestinian-Israeli situation? Ambassador Ford, I know that it's Syria, you know you're serious, but I know you know other stuff as well, so please take it. Oh, I keep forgetting. I think the world of 2017 is different from the world of 1974 or the world of 1979. I don't think the Americans have the ability to deliver Israel on a golden plate. Not sure they ever did, but I certainly am sure that in 2017 they don't. And so my question would be back to the questioner. What are the parties to the conflict, that is to say Israel and the Palestinians, Arabs behind the Palestinians, what are they willing themselves to do that would enable American participation from the margins, and I emphasize that, from the margins, to bridge gaps and make some progress? I don't see much moving on either side in a positive direction. And I think it's not realistic to expect the Americans. It's not realistic in terms of power. It's not realistic in terms of American politics to expect that the American administration, the new one, is going to intervene in an issue where there's a high potential political cost in the United States. And at the same time, there's very little prospect of success. 
Okay. Um, uh, I have one for uh, Sayyid Mujtahid. Take whatever part of it you feel you want to take. It's a, it's a, it's a question with many heads. So basically it says, considering the recent Turkish actions in the Middle East, Turkish military intervention against Syrian Kurds and ISIS and violating Iraq's sovereignty, how will the next administration respond to the complications that arise out of these actions? Well, we need to go to the basics, basic relationship between uh, Turkey, which is a NATO ally, and the United States. Um, we certainly, as an American, has great interest in the Middle East. We demonstrated it for the last 60, 70 years. Um, and therefore, Turkey is a major partner to the United States. And I think it will be a very big mistake, as was demonstrated under the Obama administration, to, to give a cold shoulder to Turkey. I truly think, especially if Clinton won the election, I think she will restore the confidence between Turkey and the U.S. relationship. And the Kurdish issue should not be any relevant when it comes uh, to the territory in Syria. Um, you know, Syria received the, the Kurds as a refugee, and the majority of them integrated in the Syrian society. And so I don't see really this as an issue. I think this was created by the Russian after the conflict between, you know, uh, shooting down the Russian airplane uh, by the Turks. Okay. Uh, I wonder if uh, Dr. Anthony can uh, take uh, uh, this one. Um, it says, where do you see the, the, where do you see Saudi Arabia in 2030? And what steps does it need to take to maintain its influence in the region, do you think, from a U.S. perspective, obviously? Uh, good question. Um, all of this is surmise on anybody's part. If they say, well, it'll be this, or it'll be that, um, it entails that people be smoking something. Uh, but in 2030, of course, it will have just uh, finished uh, 20, uh, 29. Uh, we can say that if it makes it to 2030. But no, it will uh, retain overwhelmingly um, a substantial amount of its position and its role in regional and world affairs. It's uh, almost a continent more than a country. It has 13 neighbors. Uh, we have three. Uh, most Americans think we have two, unless you're Sarah Palin, who reminds us she looked out on a third one up there. Uh, and there's the Carib uh, uh, Caribbean uh, element, but nowhere near what Saudi Arabia has in terms of size and neighbors, every one of which is uh, envious, jealous, uh, some resentful, uh, but uh, in some ways um, cowed by Saudi Arabia. Not physically, although some are, uh, but uh, the role that Saudi Arabia has where between one out of five and one out of four mortals on the planet take Saudi Arabia figuratively, seriously into their consideration up to five times a day. No other country on, the, on Earth has that kind of influence. It's ongoing. It's not subject to elections, or even years or otherwise. Um, and then the Hajj. 
with regard to that same 1.6 billion Muslims uh, taking Saudi Arabia seriously into uh, their consideration, which gives Saudi Arabia a position of, of, of uh, prayer and pilgrimage, of faith and uh, spiritual devotion, uh, perhaps unlike any other single country in the world but one, and that would be the small Vatican State, which has uh, that two billion Christians and uh, one billion of, of Roman Catholics. Um, its energy situation, uh, I think a statement was made yesterday, uh, and the numbers are even higher than I recall. I think Saudi Arabia produces from 21 oil fields, and it's got more than 80. So 60 are in the, in the closet, in the hangar, and not even tapped or touched. Uh, no country in the world is like that. The United States uh, produces 15 barrels a day. Saudi Arabia's average is 12,000 barrels a day. Uh, America's uh, tw um, production comes from 650,000 wells, all driven by a pump. No Saudi Arabian well is driven by a pump. When we find it, which is seldom, challenges to get it out of the ground. When Saudi Arabia finds it, which is frequently, challenges to keep it in the ground. Uh, and on and on. Uh, with regard to it having uh, uh, just under a trillion dollars in America's banks. The United States doesn't have a penny, last time I checked, in Saudi Arabia's banks. Um, its role in the League of Arab States as a founder, OPEC as a founder, OAPEC as a founder, Organization Islamic Conference as a founder, United Nations as a founder, World Bank as a founder, International Court of uh, Justice as a founder. Uh, and that's just about half of its uh, assets and sources of influence that no other uh, regional country uh, comes close, remotely close to matching. Okay, I have a, a, maybe two final ones. I have one for Mona uh, Makram um, uh, and then I will come to a final one for Ambassador Ford on Syria and Yemen in the next administration. So how might the brain drain from the Arab world be halted or at least diminished, it says? Well, the, uh, the brain drain is increasing. It's not diminishing presently. And I think that the governments of the Arab world in the past years have not responded to the aspirations of the, of, of the youth in, for employment, for jobs, for a hope in the future. And that is why, what was at the, at, the, at the source of the Arab Spring, of the revolt of these young, savvy uh, youngsters today who knew how to use the social media. Today they don't want to stay in their countries. They want to leave. They want to find better opportunity. And that is the biggest challenge that, that faces the Arab countries today, is how to keep their youth in, at home. So how do you think they should be kept at home? Uh, by, by, by new policies, because all the failed policies have provoked this, these revolutions. So what, what is it? They, they have been, uh, not ostracized, but I mean, set aside. Nothing, no, nothing was taken into account, even after the, the revolutions, of what they wanted. So their aspirations have not been met. And as long as they have not been met, we will have protests on the one hand, and we will have people 
running away from their countries. Ambassador Ford, I'm going to read to you this one verbatim. It says, with all sympathy with the Syrian crisis, Yemen seems like a missing issue. Yemen is more vulnerable to the impact of war according to some studies. Thank you, it says. What sort of position do you think Yemen may or may not occupy on the radar of the next administration? First, the suffering in Yemen has been horrific. I've seen pictures on Twitter in the last week of uh, people starving to death. It's, it's really horrific. Uh, it's a tragedy in Syria and it's a tragedy in Yemen. I like being retired because I can say what I think. So I don't think the next administration is going to pay a lot of attention to Yemen, frankly. I think the U.S. military will pay some attention to Yemen because of its strategic importance at the southern entrance to the Red Sea. But I haven't seen a lot of Obama administration engagement on the civilian side. That is to say the Department of State, White House. I haven't seen the Vice President make calls. I haven't seen the Secretary of State make calls. Uh, certainly haven't seen the Secretary of State convene a peace conference to back up the UN or anything. And so I think the outlook for Yemen is in the next administration with challenges, foreign, big foreign policy challenges on all sides, my sense is that the, the, while the US military will remain engaged on some level, I will be very surprised if the next administration, Trump or more likely Clinton, uh, puts a lot of civilian effort into finding a solution. And, you know, it's not the Pentagon's mission to arrange peace deals. That's the civilian side. I think they'll leave it to the UN still, to Will Sheikh and his valiant team. Dr. Anthony. Um, in my own uh, talks with uh, GCC officials, uh, there has been a GCC initiative in Yemen early on. The GCC countries are all parts of the Friends of Yemen. Uh, both Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, as well as Oman, all three have played and continue to play negotiation, mediation efforts. Uh, the Yemen ambassador who was here this morning, don't know if he's still here, uh, but he was the one who uh, choreographed Secretary General for the uh, Regents Unit uh, of 665, uh, 635 members of the uh, National uh, dialogue of Yemen that was all inclusive and um, unless someone wants to challenge and correct me on this my latest information is that there's an emerging consensus of a, a unified Yemen but a de facto decentralized Yemen uh, that would have three broad parts um, and they would be largely horizontal uh, a southern one that would essentially be a re repetition of what used to be known as the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen, um, based in Aden and with the uh, government of uh, Al-Hadi. And um, a, a second one would be a northern Yemen uh, that would have uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh and the Houthis uh, together uh, based on, in Sana'a. And a third one would be in the center, uh, based or centered on Taiz, 
but with an indeterminate uh, uh, leadership of that. And these would be horizontal all the way over to Oman, through the Hadramaut, um, and uh, to the east and to the west, all the way over to the Red Sea. That seems to be doable, and an emerging consensus on that. Uh, regardless of the uh, legality of it, or the de jure aspect of it, uh, the de facto consensus is uh, emerging along those lines. Saudi Arabia could live with that, I believe. Uh, we could live with that, I believe. The region could live with that, I believe. And most of the Yemeni people could live with that. The GCC has made a de, de facto decision to try to integrate Yemen economically, not politically. They cannot bring it uh, politically because of the arms. That's some 27 million arms in Yemen. Uh, they're not more than 270 in most of the GCC countries. Uh, you don't have to have a license to have an arms in Yemen. You have to have a license to have a tank in Yemen. Uh, but the uh, GCC countries are largely uh, armless at the popular level. Yemen is the profoundly opposite. Okay. Well, thank you. With that, my, na my name, by the way, is Abdul Rahim, which means the servant of the compassionate. I'm going to take some compassion and mercy.